In our gospel of Matthew study that we have been in for the last several months, we have now come to the final chapters of the book. We are looking at the final hours of the life of Jesus as recounted by Matthew. And last time, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way to the Mount of Olives after having eaten what has come to be known as the Last Supper, he told them that they would all fall away and desert him. Well, Peter, he refused to accept that, insisting that even if he had to die for Jesus, he would not deny him. Well, Jesus, he tried to get Peter to understand that he didn't really know what he was talking about, that Peter was making a promise that he would not be able to keep. He told Peter that he was going to deny Jesus three times that very night. Well, Jesus then led the disciples to a place called Gethsemane, a garden area on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, and he asked his disciples to wait for him while he went a little further into the garden alone to pray. And Jesus faced a tremendous internal battle as he wrestled in prayer. The struggle was so intense that it says in Luke's telling of the story that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, prayer is not usually thought to be a physically taxing activity. It's, it's hard for us to imagine really the intensity of the praying that Jesus was doing to cause him to perspire as described by Luke. But as we noted last time, Jesus, he literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders. Every human being who has ever lived or ever will live was depending on Jesus in that moment. Our salvation depended on his victory in this battle that night in the garden. His victory didn't come through the act of tremendous power, though, but through an act of unprecedented submission. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The innocent Christ willingly laying his life down for the guilty. Well, after his great battle in prayer that night, Jesus returned to his disciples, finding all of them asleep, knowing that Judas and the group with him were coming into the garden. He told his disciples to get up. The time had come. And this is where we pick the story up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. 26, verse 47. It says, while he was speaking, while Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. I want us to note at this point who it is behind the arrest of Jesus. It says it's the chief priests and the elders who have sent them. The ruling body that included these various religious leaders within its membership was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews, which had jurisdiction over virtually everything in Israel at that time. It had the authority to judge not only civil law cases, but also criminal law cases. It even had its own police force with the power to arrest people. The Sanhedrin was granted power by the Romans to judge and to try all cases, except for those involving capital punishment. Capital punishment cases required confirmation and action by the Roman authority. Verse 48, 
says, now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. So the prearranged signal for identifying Jesus was for Judas to kiss him. It was customary for a student to greet his rabbi or his teacher with a kiss, so Judas's act would not be suspected for what it really was by most of the people there. Jesus, of course, he knows exactly what Judas is doing. As Judas kisses Jesus, he says to him, do what you came for, friend. Now, a question that might be on our mind is, why would Judas have to identify Jesus at all? Given Jesus's celebrity, wouldn't almost everyone present know who Jesus was? Well, maybe not. Remember, this is the first century. So there is no mass media that would have been broadcasting photos and videos of Jesus in the news outlets. Lots of people would have heard about Jesus, but not necessarily actually seen him up close. Even in our day, it's not always easy, is it, to recognize a celebrity in real life who we have seen in the media. You might walk right by a person and say, did you realize that that was... No, it doesn't even look like him to me. Remember, too, there are no electric streetlights illuminating the Garden of Gethsemane. It's very dark, making it hard to identify anyone. The only light would have been the moon overhead and the torches that are being carried by Judas and the Sanhedrin's mob. They want to make sure they are grabbing the right guy. 51. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. <clears throat> Matthew doesn't identify who it is that cuts off this man's ear with a sword, but John tells us in his gospel that it was Peter. Peter is not a trained soldier. He's a fisherman whose sword-wielding skills are likely not so great. Peter was probably aiming for this guy's head. But he's able to sidestep the attack enough that he only lost his ear. To Peter's credit, he's doing what he said he would do. He's standing by Jesus' side right now and putting his own life on the line for him as best as he can. But Jesus, he doesn't want or need Peter to defend him, to protect him, to fight for him. Peter still doesn't realize it, but he needs Jesus to defend him, to protect him, to fight for him. Luke twenty-two fifty-one tells us that Jesus ordered that the fighting stop, and then he reached out and he healed the man's ear. I think if I had been one of the people arresting Jesus, and I saw him reach out and heal this man's ear in front of me, I would have given up trying to arrest Jesus at that point. In John's account, it says that when Jesus first spoke, they were all knocked back and they fell to the ground even. Well, 52, 
Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? A legion was a unit of about 6,000 soldiers. Now, if you know anything about the real angels of the Bible, not the cute little chubby ones on the greeting cards, but the real angels of the Bible, you know that 12 legions of angels, that would be 6,000 times 12 angels, that would be enough firepower to wipe out the whole human race many times over in a matter of minutes. I want us to realize just how ridiculous it is for these men to arrest Jesus. Jesus could have easily stopped all of this stuff at any time he wanted. He chose to lay his life down, to let them have him, to arrest him, to try him, to beat him, to torture him, to kill him. He let that happen. As mentioned earlier, Jesus won our salvation through an act of unprecedented submission rather than through a display of his power. In John 10, 17, Jesus said this. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, voluntarily, of my own choosing. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So Jesus confronts them about the way they have come out to arrest him. This mob carrying clubs and swords as if he's some kind of dangerous criminal. And Jesus says, I've been teaching in the temple courts Every day in public view, you could have easily arrested me then, but you didn't. This highlights the spinelessness of the Jewish leaders, though. They, they were afraid to arrest Jesus in the public, knowing that the common people wouldn't like that. Jesus then says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. See, none of this is happening by accident. It's all part of the plan and purpose of God in spite of the injustice of it. God sent His Son to die for us. That familiar passage in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The last sentence of verse 56 reads this way. It says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Let that sentence linger for a moment. All of Jesus' supporters, all of them left him and ran for their lives. Jesus is left all alone. 
He told his disciples earlier that night that this is what was going to happen. Matthew 26, 31, he said to them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike this shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And now his words are fulfilled. The trial of Jesus takes place in two stages. There is the Jewish trial, and then there will be the Roman trial. And the following verses that we'll be looking at today recount the Jewish trial. So in verse 57, it says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So Jesus is brought before the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. The hearing is being held at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, who is the presiding member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is being accused of committing blasphemy and being a false prophet. In the most severe situations, these are punishable by death under the Jewish law. Verse 58, it says, But Peter, he followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So after his initial panic subsided a little, Peter, he got his courage up enough to follow at a distance to see what was going to happen to Jesus. And he's sitting, it says, in the courtyard of the high priest's residence, warming himself by a fire with the others that are there. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. These verses show how rigged the trial of Jesus is. It is a complete sham. There are a number of witnesses who come forward to give testimony against Jesus, but there's a big problem with it. None of their stories agree. Their testimony is inconsistent. Someone claims one thing. Someone else claims another thing. The Jewish law required that in the case of a death penalty situation, at least two witnesses had to testify, and their testimonies had to be consistent with each other in significant detail. Unfortunately for them, they can't even get two good false witnesses to come up with something consistent against Jesus. It's all just a very bad joke. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Ooh. So there's some accusers who finally come forward claiming that Jesus has said he could destroy the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild it in three days. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said that if they destroyed this temple, referring to his own body, he would raise it up again in three days, making reference to his resurrection. That's in John chapter 2, verse 19. And Jesus, he predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by others in Matthew 24, 2. But he didn't say what they're saying. And really, this is a pretty weak charge to make against someone to justify executing them anyway, isn't it? He said he's going to knock down our temple. He should be killed for that. 
They sound like a bunch of second graders. Sixty-two. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus remained silent before his accusers, just like the prophecy said he would in Isaiah 57, I mean 53.7, Isaiah 53.7, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then the high priest Caiaphas demands, Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. They haven't been able to get any of their own witnesses to provide enough evidence to convict Jesus. So the high priest is hoping Jesus will condemn himself through his own testimony. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The translation of Jesus' answer into English here when he says, you have said so, it's difficult to capture the meaning. Jesus is answering with an acknowledgement that he is the Messiah, but he's not agreeing with the way Caiaphas and the others think of the Messiah. Jesus refuses even now to be pigeonholed into their categories and definitions of who he is. Another way of translating Jesus' answer here is that is the way you are putting it. That is your way of putting it. Jesus, he then expands his answer with the next sentence about his eternal glory and power and second coming. Jesus is saying, in effect, that on a day in the future, their roles are going to be reversed. Jesus will be the judge, and the high priest and the Sanhedrin will be the ones judged. Well, Jesus' answer, it may sound a bit ambiguous to us here, but the high priest has no trouble understanding the meaning of Jesus' words. Look at how he reacts in the next verses. 65, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He spoke in blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look how you have heard. Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. The high priest, the high priest tearing his Close is a gesture that means he has just heard what he considers an appalling blasphemy. There's no point going on with the trial in his mind. Jesus has just incriminated himself by uttering an unthinkable blasphemy in their presence. The others present agree with the high priest's verdict. They answer, he is worthy of death. The prediction that Jesus made back in Matthew 20, verse 18, has come to pass. 
And he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Before they ever even got there, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Finally, verse 67, it says, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So they begin to hit him and spit on him and mock him. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The scene changes now to Peter, who has been sitting in the courtyard of the high priest's residence, remember, trying to learn what he can about how the trial is going. So in verse 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I I don't know what you're talking about, he said. So there's denial number one. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So there's denial number two. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. So there's denial number three. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The Monday morning quarterback type disciple may criticize Peter for his behavior here. But I don't think there is one of us here who would have fared any better than Peter did on that night. Peter obviously loves Jesus very much, or he wouldn't have risked following as he does and trying to listen in on what was going on. Let's not forget that Peter showed his bravery earlier that same night when he took out the sword and he started swinging it when Jesus was being arrested. When Peter realizes what he's done, denying even knowing Jesus three times, says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And when I read those words, my heart aches for Peter. Peter feels like he has failed Jesus in the worst way possible. Knowing human nature, Peter is probably blaming himself for what is happening to Jesus. He's probably thinking, if I had only done something, none of this would be happening. There's nothing Peter could have done to prevent this from happening. The powers at work on this night are far beyond Peter. And as awful as all of this is, it's what Jesus came to earth to do. This 
has been his mission all along. We're going to stop there this morning in our story. But in closing, I want to talk just for a minute. Let us know that this is not the end of Peter's story. Sometimes we can feel like we have failed the Lord so terribly. And I want you to hear that in Peter's story, your story, it's not the end of your story either. After his resurrection, Jesus, he will tell his disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. Jesus will make a point of mentioning Peter by name so that Peter will know that Jesus didn't blame him. Jesus loves Peter. See, there's a a big difference between the betrayal of Judas and the denial or the betrayal of Peter. There They may look similar on the surface, but they had very different motives and intents. They have very different hearts. Judas was motivated by his selfish greed and power. He was a pretender. He was a hypocrite. He was not who he claimed to be. He he saw Jesus as a means to an end for his own interests. Everything was ultimately about himself. Peter, in contrast, he loves Jesus. He wants to please him. Jesus is the center of his life. He didn't see Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus is the end for him. Knowing Jesus is the goal for Peter. Peter, he sought to do the right thing, but he didn't always accomplish that. Sometimes he spoke when he should have listened Sometimes he fell asleep when he should have been praying. Sometimes he let his emotions lead him and get the best of him. Sometimes he took actions that were terribly misguided. Sometimes he chickened out when challenged to stand for Jesus. Sometimes Peter made a mess of things. Sometimes he hurt people in the process process of doing what he thought was right. Peter was a long way from perfect, but he loved Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. He worshiped Jesus. He followed Jesus. Jesus wants the same from you and me. He wants us to love him, to trust in him, to worship him, to follow him. He loves you. And his love for you is not dependent on you always doing the right thing. His love for you is dependent on himself. Peter has not been disqualified from being used by Jesus because of what he's done this night either. Peter will become a key leader in the church. He will be used by Jesus in the lives of others. Many years from now, Peter, he's going to die for Jesus. But he'll not die by taking a bold stand against the enemies of Jesus, swinging a sword. Instead, he'll die as a humble martyr for Jesus. And it will be a beautiful expression of the life-changing work that the Lord has done in Peter over the many years of his life. The same can happen in our life. If you will 
give your heart to Jesus and follow him. He will change you. You're going to become more and more like Jesus. And one day he's going to bring you home to be with him forever. And no matter what you look like now, on that day you're going to be changed in a flash to be like him. After his resurrection, Jesus, he's going to have a talk with Peter. In John chapter 21, it talks about that. He's going to talk with Peter about what happened on this terrible night and what Jesus wanted Peter to do going forward from there. And do you know what Jesus told Peter to do? He gave him two words. He said, follow me. Follow me. And he wants the same from you and me. Follow him. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for you preserving for us the history of your life among us, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for what you've done for us, giving your life for us. We thank you for the story of Peter, that it reminds us that you're faithful. You're the one we depend on. It's your promises that are kept that matter. And we look to you, Lord, to continue the good work you're doing in our life, that you will bring it to completion. You'll glorify yourself in us. I pray that you would encourage each of your people this morning with that precious truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.